find Jonah. We're going to look tonight at the subject matter, God's discipline of his children. So let's pick up reading where we left off last time. We're in Jonah chapter 1. And uh, we're beginning tonight in verse 4, but let's go back to verse 1 and read from there. And we will uh, read all the way down through uh, verse 17. Give everybody a minute to find their place. Cell phones off? Two weeks ago, it was <laughs> cell, cell phone alley in here. <laughs> okay, now the word of the Lord came to uh, Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea might, might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more <coughs> tempestuous. <coughs> Excuse me. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Some people thought he was a, a nut. After all, he was just a shoemaker. 
and only an average one at that. But in the evenings after work, he studied Greek and Hebrew and various other languages as well. He devoured Captain Cook's voyages so in his mind he could expand his horizons of the world. Some people said his time would have been far better spent getting a second job and supporting his family that was not well off. But the young man's passion wasn't just a curious, self-satisfying hobby. You see, early in life, he had become concerned about the millions and millions in the world who have no access to the gospel. And so with God's help, he slowly began to figure out what he would do. <clears throat> he ended up going to India to serve as the first Protestant missionary in the modern era. Now, his passion inspired a generation of men and women, the likes of Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, and David Livingston, just to name a few. Because one impoverished shoemaker by the name of William Carey followed his God-given passion, large parts of the world that had had no access to the gospel finally had access. And in those parts of the world today, there are churches still standing that bear witness of his work. He was obedient to God's call. God's call to go to the pagans. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at God's call to Jonah. And Jonah's objections, Jonah's disobedience. We saw that the word of the Lord came to Jonah with a very special assignment. And folks, you couldn't get any more plain than what God told him to do. God told him, arise and go to Nineveh and preach. There was nothing cloudy about that assignment. God made very clear to him what he was to do. But the Bible says that Jonah arose and he went to Tarshish, the opposite direction. God was calling him to go east, sort of northeast, to the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, but he went as far west as you could go, over on the coast of Spain. And as he went in the opposite direction, he found everything to his liking, didn't he? He found a ship that was going to Tarshish. He was able to pay the fare and get on board. I mean, it just, everything seemed like it was working out perfectly for him. Now, we saw how Jonah misunderstood the nature of the will of God. He viewed the will of God as something bad. <clears throat> and he viewed it as something that you and I can negotiate. He also must have mistakenly thought that the, the call of God and the will of God is supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to involve some kind of sacrifice or hardship. Must have been his thinking. Furthermore, he must have thought you can get away from the presence of the Lord. Well, this week we're going to see how God pursued Jonah and disciplined him. 
And we're going to see how God pursues us in love. And God will not let us go. And we can be so grateful for that. Now the first thing I want you to see with me tonight is simply... God disciplines His children. From uh, verse 4. Somebody read verse 4 again for us. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Okay. Jonah doesn't have the last say, does he? What have I told y'all a number of times that Charles Spurgeon used to say in regards to sin? You remember that quote? God will not allow his children to sin successfully. Exactly. God doesn't allow his children to sin successfully. God hurls a great wind upon the sea. Now, folks, we know that God's discipline can come in a variety of ways. Now, before I get into that, let me say up front that, that not everybody going through trouble in their life is undergoing the judgment or the discipline of God. That's the way some people view it. The ancient Jews viewed it that way. If you were experiencing trial or tribulation, it's because God was taking you to the woodshed. And that might be true, but it might not be true. That's why Job's friends responded that way to Job's suffering. Remember what Eliphaz said in Job chapter 4, verses 7 and 9? He said, remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. That was the type of counsel Job got from his friends. Job, you're experiencing hardship, so if you're experiencing hardship, you must be unrighteous, and God's dealing with you. But we need to understand that's not always the case. In fact, what was God's verdict of Job when Satan came along accusing him? God, not men, but God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job a righteous and a, and a blameless man? That was God's verdict of Job. But again, Job's friends were, you've done something to deserve this. Now, if you're going through hardship or trial, it's, it's always a good place to at least start to try to consider, have I done something that God is trying to wake me up and get my attention and discipline me? I mean, just because it's not always the case doesn't mean we don't need to at least entertain the, It might be the case. But if your heart and life is clean before God, you might need to just realize that, hey, this is what it's like to live in a fallen world. People suffer. A third reason for hardship is that it's a sign of God's favor. 
Not his disfavor. Job was an example of that point. He was being tested not because he was unrighteous, but because he was righteous. Sometimes God disciplines us or causes hardship uh, just to get us to be dependent upon him. Paul, with his thorn in the flesh, had to learn that lesson, right? God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Uh, in your weakness, you're going to find my strength. So Paul was taught to depend upon the Lord. Still another reason for going through hardship is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. God has us maybe going through hardship to train us so that we can minister to somebody else in a few days or weeks or months or years that's going to be going through the same kind of hardship and they're going to need encouragement. And so God's allowing you to go through it right now, sort of a seminary training, so you can come through it on the other side and be ready to minister to somebody who's going to go through that same trial. Those are just some of the reasons we go through suffering and hardship. But back to Jonah a moment. Jonah definitely faced hardship and suffering and trials and testing as a result of God's discipline. Jonah was a disobedient prophet and he needed to be chastened by the Lord. We need to see though that what God did in Jonah's life was not because God hated Jonah but because God loved Jonah. And we need to understand that. Everything God is doing in Jonah's life is to draw Jonah back in to a closer relationship with God and to obedience with God. Because again, God loved him. Now sometimes we might be tempted to think, God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't put this hardship on me. But again, it may be because God does love you, he's placed that hardship on you. Turn with me a minute to Hebrews chapter five, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews 12, look with me a moment at verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when we, when we reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chase, chastens or chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. What's the writer of Hebrews saying God does to his children? He disciplines us. He chastens us. And who is it that receives the discipline? It's his children. Parents discipline their own, right? 
I've told you a lot about growing up. My dad was a strong, even my friends knew, my dad was a strong disciplinarian. Boy, he would, whoo, he would get you. But guess what? He didn't discipline other people's kids. He might send them home or talk to their parents. But he disciplined me. You discipline your own kids. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. God disciplines his own. And that is a sign of sonship. Somebody who can just stray from God and run from God and disobey him and not sense any discipline or chastisement at all you might need to consider whether or not you're really God's child. Now, look at what God uses here to discipline Jonah. What does he use? He uses a storm. Now, folks, it shouldn't surprise us at all that God used nature. After all, who's over nature? God is. God's the creator. God can use anything he wants to use, and God can certainly use the forces of nature. At one time in the Old Testament, remember, God even used a donkey to, to speak to his servant. God can use whatever he wants to use. What's he using in your life right now? If you're under the discipline of the Lord, what's he using? You don't have to answer out loud. What's he using? How's he doing it? Again, I want you to remember it's a sign of his love. It is a sign of sonship that you belong to him. I, I, I want you to also notice from verse 13 that God is able to accomplish his purpose in the discipline. It says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They tried everything they could do to stop this storm and overcome it, but because they were fighting against God, they were fighting a losing battle. So you need to respond to God's discipline. What's God trying to teach you? And what's he using to teach you his lessons? Again, it's a sign of sonship. Now, the second thing I want you to see here tonight is our sin affect others. Somebody read verses 5 to 6 for us. Anybody? Then the mariners were afraid each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call her to your God. Perhaps that, perhaps the God will give a thought to us 
that we may not perish. We don't sin privately. Our sin can impact others. Right? I'll give you a New, New Testament example. Write down 1 Corinthians 7. And if you go back tonight and read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's talking there about marriage. And he's talking about the scenario where it turns out that there is a believer married to an unbeliever. Now, we know, of course, that believers aren't to go out and marry an unbeliever. But sometimes it happens. You have two unbelievers get married. One of them gets saved. Then, then they're married to an unbeliever. And the question the Corinthians had for Paul was, am I now supposed to divorce my unbelieving spouse and go find me a believer? And what was his answer? No. And remember, remember what he went on to say about that too? He said the believer can end up having a sanctifying effect in the home. It's not that God's going to save the other family members just automatically because there's a believer in the home, but that believer can have a sanctifying effect, can be a witness, and, and the other family members can end up coming to faith in Christ too. And so Paul says to the Christian there, if the unbeliever leaves, then let him leave. You're not bound. But if the unbeliever is willing to stay, then you stay. And he points out there, as believers, we're, we're always to be agents of reconciliation. Trying to hold our relationships together. We're to be a positive witness. That's what we're to do as, as believers. But again, he's talking there about the sanctifying influence. See, it can work for the good or the bad either way, right? Um, another example in the New Testament, which is interesting, because it's the example of Paul on board a ship with unbelievers. In Acts 27, do you remember that story? What, what ends up happening in that story when they face a storm? Does anybody remember that story? And, and what God revealed to Paul and why the men were to stay on board with Paul. You remember what was said? Exactly. Paul's on that ship. God's got an appointment for Paul to get to Rome. And God revealed to Paul, I'm going to bring all of you through this storm safely. The ship's going to be broken up in the end. But nevertheless, everybody's going to be okay. But Paul, everybody's got to stay on board with you. You know, if they don't, then they're not necessarily going to be okay. But those people being on board that ship with Paul, because Paul had an assignment from God to get to Rome and be a witness, those with Paul, if they stayed there with him, they were going to be safe too. Again, the opposite is true. 
an Old Testament example, Achan. The children of Israel go up against Jericho, and they defeat it. God defeats it. And God tells them not to take anything under the ban. That all the spoils belong to God. They think everything's okay. They go up to battle against Ai. They think Ai is a tiny little place compared to Jericho. We don't even need to take everybody against Ai. They go up against Ai and they get a whooping. And 36 of their men die. And they go before God. God, what happened? God said, there's sin in the camp. I told you not to take anything under the ban. Who did that? They, you remember what they did? They, they, it, they went through those different steps. Achan was found out that he took things under the ban. Achan received the death penalty. His whole family received the death penalty. And remember, again, those 36 men died because God didn't bless them in the battle against Ai. So Achan was a curse to all of Israel. What am I saying? I'm saying this principle can work both ways, right? A believer's righteousness can be a blessing to those around him or her. An unbeliever's unbelief and wickedness can be a curse to those around them. Our sin affects others. We don't sin privately. I wonder how many boys follow in the footsteps of a dad, maybe a dad's an old drunk and womanizer and hates God. His son grows up and it's the same way. Same way. What does your life say to others? What kind of example are you? Jonah's sin and disobedience put a lot of people at risk. Well, third thing I want you to see. Sometimes unbelievers This shouldn't be the case, but sometimes it is. Sometimes unbelievers can act with more compassion, with more compassion than believers. You can't help but to some degree at least like and appreciate these pagan sailors on board with Jonah. I want you to think about the contrast here. What's God's man doing? He's down inside the ship and he's doing what? Sleeping. He's sleeping. 
What are the pagans doing? They are praying to their gods. Now, obviously, they don't have it right as far as being saved men and praying to true gods. They're as lost as lost can be, and they're praying to idols. But they're afraid, and, and they're praying, and they're working as hard as they can work to save the ship and to save their lives. And meanwhile, the very one who could have done something about the situation is down inside the hull of the ship fast asleep. Now these men start doing the, uh, the ancient version of trying to discern God's will. What are they doing? They're casting lots. The Hebrews believed, and you may want to write down Proverbs 16.33. Proverbs 16.33 talks about how God would sometimes, he would use the casting of lots to reveal his will. Can you think of a place in the New Testament? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting we're supposed to cast lots to discern God's will, but I, I'm just simply saying that Bible days, they did that sometimes. I mean, God honored it oftentimes. Where's a place in the New Testament they did that and God used it? Replacing Judas. In Acts chapter 1, they cast lots. Well, they do so here, and the lot falls to Jonah. What do these men start doing? They start asking Jonah all kinds of questions. Who are you? Where are you from? Who are your people? Uh, when they find out the verdict and what Jonah is up to, what would you expect them to do? You would expect them to grab Jonah up, toss him overboard, and say, Adios, brother. You asked for this. We're not dying for you. You're on your own. That's what you would have expected from pagan men. But again, look at, look at uh, verse 13. What are they doing there? They go back to feverishly trying to save the ship and everybody on it. They're acting better than God's prophet. Folks, again, this shouldn't be the case at all. What a shame that sometimes the lost in the world act more Christian than Christians act. Again, going back to an example I've given you time and time again, I'm, I'm grateful my dad finally came around. But he didn't go to church with us growing up. And he was like, I'll just tell you sometimes some what he would say. I'm just, just repeating what he'd say. I deal with devils all week in the business world. Why in the world do I want to go to church on Sunday and deal with church folks that act that same way and they think they're saved? He said, I don't need to go to church and you run into more of that. Now, why did he say that? Because unfortunately... In his life, he had been in a lot of churches where Christians acted very unchristianly. And, and that just, he'd go somewhere and see that and just, I just can't believe it. Here it is again, Christians acting that, so-called Christians acting that way. Mm -hmm. 
So he had a low opinion of Christians. And when I told him God called me into the ministry, boy, I had a fight on my hands. He didn't want me going that way at all. And the reason he didn't want me going into the ministry is because of what he had seen in church folks. Uh, sometimes pagans act better than we do. Now, why is that? Because let's not forget, um, as Paul says in the book of Romans and other places, God, God puts within each of us what? A conscience. And we all experience common grace. Sun shining on the righteous and the unrighteous. Rain falling. So, in general revelation, there, if people are just, if they're watching, paying attention, God reveals himself just in creation. Not enough for people to be saved. You need special revelation for that. But I'm, I'm just saying sometimes unbelievers respond to just general revelation and end up acting better than Christians do. Well, fourth thing I want you to see. We can have the proper theology that we can have the proper theology without having the proper life what I'm, what I'm talking about is the application the way we don't always live out what we say we believe right look at verse 9 what did he say to these pagan sailors somebody read verse 9 he answered I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Okay. I'm a Hebrew and I worship, some translations say, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Is he making a good orthodox statement there? Yes. Sunday school answer. Sunday school, he's giving us a good Sunday school answer. But yet, what's he doing with his life? I believe in God. I'm a Hebrew. I'm among his people. And I believe in God. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And he's running. And here I am running. <laughs> his life isn't matching up what, he's, what he says he believes, right? His feet and his mouth are not going in the same direction. He believes the right things in his head. He's just not applying them in his, in his life. What's James say about that in the book of James in the New Testament? You know, when you look at James, does James make the argument that works save? No. Faith saves, but it must be a faith that works. A true faith bears fruit. Somebody who says they believe but don't have the fruit of belief 
James makes the point they're deceiving themselves. He points out anybody can say they believe. James says the devils believe, and what do they do? Tremble. The devils aren't saved. A saving faith changes your life. I have had people before. Now, now, just time out. Let me say, only God can be the judge in the final analysis. But I've had people before who have no evidence of conversion. Nobody would ever look at them and say they love God or God's family or God's work or God's word. They're, and I'm, I'm talking about sometimes people even in church. They're driven by the desires of the world. And they've told me, Pastor, I know I'm saved. My mama told me. I walked the aisle when I was 10 years old and was baptized. I know I'm saved. That's almost a, that's a Roman Catholic view of conversion almost. Not, a, not an evangelical Protestant view. The Roman Catholic view is what? An infant child is baptized into the, into the church. They're saved. And sometimes as Protestants, we can almost approach that view. Get a child to walk an aisle, fill out a commitment card, join the church, be baptized, and they're saved. And yet, there may be no real conversion that takes place in their heart. There's no Christian fruit in their lives. They live all their lives and they're rebels to God and no fruit. But they say, oh, I'm saved. Because back when I was eight years old, I walked the aisle. And I'm not, I'm not diminishing walking the aisle and giving a profession of faith if it's real. What did Jesus say we would know people by? Their fruit. Again, we can't be the final judge on the, on the matter. That's God's work. I'm glad that's God's work, not ours. But we should be able, and I'm, I'm talking about looking at somebody's pattern of their overall life. I'm not talking about people who stumble and disobey. For, I'm talking about somebody overall in their life, there's no fruit, and yet they say they're saved. There's a problem with that. You say, so pastor, are you saying that Jonah was lost? No, I'm not saying that at all. I personally believe Jonah was a saved man. God finally humbles him and, and he obeys. That's important because I think somebody who says they're saved and yet they're in disobedience to God, if they're saved, what's Hebrews 5 say God does? Disciplines them. And finally, they're going to come around in some way. That doesn't mean that they didn't go off in the wrong direction, but God goes after them, convicts them, disciplines them, and gets them back. The person I'm concerned about is the person who says they're saved and they never come back around. Then I wonder if they had it to begin with. Uh, on a side note, you could argue effectively if you wanted to that Jonah 
didn't get saved until the end of chapter 2. The end of chapter 2, when he humbles himself in the belly of the fish, and then God speaks to the fish, has him spit him out, and then Jonah obeyed. You could argue that that was his conversion. Again, I think he was saved. And what God does is disciplines him, and he humbles himself, comes back to God. But it could be the other way. If it was the other way, I think he'd be in the same category as Isaiah. I don't think Isaiah was saved until Isaiah chapter 6. When he said, woe is me, I'm undone. And God touched his lips said, here, you're cleansed now. In other words, Isaiah was a priest in the service of the Lord, but I don't think he was saved until he had that encounter with God in the temple. So could Jonah have been a prophet and not saved until then? Yeah. But again, I think he was saved. And God disciplined him. Fifth God. Thing. Yes. There's a lot of people in here think the way I was thinking when I studied this. I asked, what, that's what I asked. Was he a, a child of God? Right. But then when I read 9, mm -hmm. and it said that you know, he was a servant of God, I said, well, apparently he is, but apparently he doesn't know that Christ, God controls the sea too. He didn't know that, but he tried to go in the sea to get away from it. Verse 9 could have been just an empty profession of faith. Yeah. Again, I certainly by the end of chapter 2, Jonah's saved. I, I do think he was saved all along and and this was God disciplining him. But I'm not going to argue with somebody who says he wasn't saved to the end of chapter 2. We come out at basically the same place. You know what else? Like, oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Go ahead. My question is why would you disobey something you knew that you heard Right. and I mean, sure. I mean, because that requires an action on your part. Sure, it does. An opposing action to something that you didn't believe existed. Sure. Why would you even bother? Right. That's my question. Am I mistaken in thinking that he didn't care for those people to begin with? And oh, he did not like that. Right. See, the Assyrians were ruthless. The Hebrews did not want to see the Assyrians saved. They wanted to see the Assyrians wiped out. Jonah, Jonah wasn't afraid of failure if he went to the Ninevites. He was afraid of success. They were going to listen to him and repent of their sin and turn to God and God was going to save them. And Jonah didn't want that. They were, they, the Hebrews lived in terror of the Assyrians and they despised them. Because just like I said Sunday, the Assyrians were kind of like what we would think of modern day ISIS. They were ruthless. Uh, Babylonians probably treated people better that they captured. The Assyrians could just butcher you and be glad that they did so. They would hang skulls and skeletons 
on walls around their city of their conquered enemies, basically to say, you come here and attack us, and this is what we're going to do to you. And uh, anyway, so... Didn't they use them for human torches, too? Uh, well, I mean, Nero did. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if the Assyrians did that. I, I wouldn't I doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it, necessarily. But... <coughs> uh, One last point here. God's dealings dealings with his children can cause the lost to get saved. Look at verses 15 and 16. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I think these men were sincere in their conversion, and I'll tell you why. Anybody can have foxhole religion. You know what foxhole religion is? You're in the middle of trouble and you cry out to God and God saves you. And then, and then what do you do? You just go back to how you were before. Foxhole religion is fake. If these men were going to have foxhole religion... Let me show you where I think they would have had it. They would have had it back somewhere around verse 13. But look at the end of verse 15. The trial is now over. The sea is calm. These men's lives are no longer threatened. But then what's verse 16 say they do after the danger is over? They feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So they come to Jehovah God after the trial is over. To me, that kind of leans me in the direction of saying, I, I think they became legitimately converted. They wanted to know a God like Jonah's God who could do even in nature what they had just witnessed God did. Well, you already know that they had within their heart a capacity to believe in God because they were calling on their gods. They were ignorant of the fact that their gods were not actual gods. Right. But it was within their consciousness of being to know that there's a God. Something. Sure. Sure. But now I think they're sacrificing to Jonah's God. And because the trial is over, I, I look at their calling upon Jehovah God as being sincere. Uh, now, as we wrap things up tonight, as, as you look at maybe some hardship in your life right now, could it be that God is trying to get your attention about something? 
the, the chastening he's doing of you, the trial he has you in, again, is not a sign of disfavor. It's a sign that he loves you. He's pursuing you. What's God wanting you to learn? Also, if you know there's sin in your life right now, I want you to stop and think about the negative impact you could end up having on those around you. Especially those who, who have young children in the home. Thirdly, do you have the compassion towards people that a Christian should have? These pagans tried to help Jonah. And when you think about Jonah again, he certainly didn't have compassion against the Ninevites. That's why he's running in the first place. Do we look at people the way God looks at people? I hope we do. And then finally, does your life reflect the overall change? <clears throat> that salvation brings. No perfection's not the standard because there's only one who's done that, Christ. But is there evidence of change in your life? Is there the fruit of conversion? Is that the overall testimony of your life? Okay. Well, unless you want me to leave it here, if somebody needs it here for a minute, I'm going to flip back to the prayer request. Anybody, any other thought before we close out chapter one? Not that this is very theological, but the world is in a terrible storm right now. There's a lot of Christians sleeping through it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Very true. Okay. <coughs> who would uh, who would lead us in our prayer time tonight in closing? Any volunteer? every single day, Lord, and we take the bread off the times, and uh, Father, you are worthy of praise, worship, adoration. Um, even these prayers that we're praying, Lord, uh, that you and you alone can hear them, Father. Father, we lift up these people that are on the board up here, God, uh, various different ailments, God, uh, people um, who appear to be uh, Unless you intervene, Lord, uh, we're going to be passing away, boys. So, God, uh, for those that are believers that are getting ready to pass away, God, we just pray that you'd comfort their hearts, Lord. And Father, you provide the support around them, people praying for them, helping them through this uh, difficult time. And Father, if they're not believers, then God, we do pray for their salvation, that uh, this will be the turning point in their lives, Lord. 
and that could go just as easily for those who have these ailments, Lord, as well. Um, just like uh, Jonah, Lord, circumstances change how you see things, Lord. So, uh, God, uh, you know, the scenes that the pastor mentioned tonight, Lord, that uh, could be causing this problem and giving us discipline, Lord, or um, sometimes you can use, uh, you know, sickness and financial reversals, job loss, all these different things, Lord, to uh, bring us to the foot of the cross, Lord. So, Father, we want to pray, Lord, for these different items up here, God. We think about this Lottie Moon Christmas offering, Lord, that uh, we're given to right now. Lord, we just pray that uh, you'd use that in a mighty way, Lord. Multiply it, Lord, to enable us to get more missionaries on the field, Lord. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Father, pray, Lord, um, Father, for these different programs. Lord, we've got a ladies program uh, coming up here uh, tomorrow night, Lord. Uh, God, if there's any maybe guests that are coming, Lord, God, we pray that you'd use it as an opportunity to uh, uh, maybe witness to them. God, we think about the men's... Uh, event that's coming up this weekend, Lord, uh, the breakfast and the work day. God, we just pray that uh, you enable our men to be able to accomplish the things that need to be accomplished that day, Lord, and uh, they would enjoy a good meal and, uh, of course, give you praise and uh, glory for that. And, uh, Father, uh, we think about uh, those who have just lost people, Lord, about uh, Tanya Cook there, Lord. Uh, God, uh, comfort her heart, Lord, and, uh, God, help them through the days ahead, Lord, as, uh, as that void becomes more and more apparent. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would comfort her and her family. And uh, God, uh, we thank Lord about uh, those that are in the hospital, uh, whether they be uh, Huntington or Northeast. Uh, Lord, uh, pray, Lord, that uh, you'd be with them during this uh, time. And we pray that you'd be with the doctors, Lord, that are treating these people. Father, we just pray that they would guide them, direct them. Uh, give them wisdom, knowledge, and understanding that they don't have. Uh, help them to be alert and not miss things that, uh, because they're only human, Lord, uh, they can miss things. So, God, we just pray that you'd be with the physicians that are treating them and the medical teams that are involved. And, uh, God, we just thank you for this church, um, for the uh, word that goes out from uh, uh, this campus, Lord, and for the ministers, Lord, you've blessed us with. Uh, thank you for them. Father, I pray, Lord, for the laymen that are within this church as well. God, I just pray that uh, for revival and spiritual awakening, Lord, to happen within our hearts, Lord. Uh, every time I read about that, there's always a confession of sin, Lord. And uh, Father, usually right after that's when you start doing some mighty things, Lord. And Father, we are in desperate need of some mighty things to be done in this country, Lord. So, God, I'm praying, Lord, you pour out your spirit on your, your uh, people, Lord, that you fill us to the point that he's overflowing out our lives into the lives of other people, Lord, because that's what you called us to minister to, this lost and dying world of women. And, God, we just pray that uh, you'd be glorified above all in everything that's said and done um, as we try to be obedient uh, to you and for you, Lord. For it's in Jesus' name, we ask. Amen. Amen. Amen.